Well, we are on a journey this year, graphically on a walk down a path, as you have seen on your bulletin cover these last few weeks. This is how we started week number one with a very simple truth. God walks and God talks. As I said, simple, profound, invested with all kinds of meaning, meaning, and we want to consider and explore what it is to walk with God and talk with God what it is to walk with each other and talk with each other. So I have rendered this message that God would have for us in this conversation in this way. That He walks to you and He says, I love you. This is His message of love. And He walks before you and He says to you, I've taken the first step to make things right. This is His message of forgiveness. And He walks with you and He says, I want you to help me change the world. This is His message of purpose. And then He walks ahead of us And he says, in time, I will fix everything. This is his message of hope. This is what we did the first week as we considered the first part of what it will mean to walk this path. Then the next week, last week, we said to ourselves, the next natural step in understanding this face-to-face conversation is to consider another simple, obvious truth, that there is a message And then there is a language, how it is communicated. And the difference between these two is this logical progression as we deepen our understanding of God's message to us. The language is the vehicle that transmits that message. It makes it real. It makes it credible. It makes it meaningful. And that's the part of our mission that I want us to focus in on this year, this touch all people. That's the language. The message is what I mentioned in this conversation. I love you. I've taken the first step to make things right. I want you to help me change the world, and in time I'll fix everything. That's the message rendered in a face-to-face conversation. But if that weren't rendered in a language that you understood, of course it would be meaningless, as we illustrated last week. It's the touching all people that becomes the language in which we can communicate this message. It looks more like actions and behaviors and relationships and service opportunities and love acted out than it is just the merely scripted words of a message. And that's the right side of the path that you can see over here. God's message, well, touching all people is the language that helps us with that message. Now I want us to consider More deeply, what what does it mean to touch all people? And that's where we move to the left side of the picture, this walking with others at the beginning of the path. We're going to focus on what it means to walk with others. We're all on a journey of deepening our understanding of God's message. And thus we have the stones that you see on the path that are represented by these four principles love and forgiveness and purpose, hope. We all need to walk with each other towards a deeper understanding of these simple but profound truths of love and forgiveness and purpose and hope. And we're going to do that simply, intentionally, and patiently. So what's that going to look like for this year? As I mentioned last week, we're going to take 
uh, a couple of weeks on each one of these concepts of love and forgiveness and purpose and hope this fall. We're going to look at 1 John, we start that this week, on love, and then we'll go to Philemon for forgiveness. On purpose, we'll be uh, looking at this mandate of the orphan as just one of the uh, classic examples of what it means to join him in changing this world. And then we'll go to 1 Thessalonians as we consider hope. And then when we get to Advent, we're going to circle around in the Advent story, in the Christmas story, and find these same four uh, purposes behind our message. Then when we get to January, we're going to walk into the gospel of Mark, the gospel account of Jesus walking with others, simply intentionally and patiently, and we'll learn from that. So, for this week, September 21st, and then next week, the 28th, we want to look at love out of First John. Who better to talk about love than the disciple whom Jesus loved? Not that he didn't love the others, but there was a special relationship there. Who better to look at as we consider this part of the conversation? I love you, as it is a key theme in his letter. Now, the first thing I want us to do is understand John. As we read the Bible, it is so important that we understand who is writing, when they're writing, why they're writing, what it is the, that they are saying in that context, in that setting, in that situation, so that we can understand it properly. So I'd like to give you a picture, if you've never gotten one, of the, the letter of 1 John today. The author of this letter, 1 John, is one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples. In fact, he's one of the closest three, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. Their mother was likely one of the women who was a supporter of Jesus all the way along and may in fact have been at the foot of the cross as well, as was John himself. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he was the only one not to desert him in the garden and, but follow him to the cross. None of the other disciples can say that. They were all scattered and ran. Now, I believe that John was the artist of the group. Do you guys know artists? Anybody here an artist? You guys are a little different in the best of ways, and I don't mean it critically or negatively. I have a son who's an artist. Marvelous personality. A little different than the average. And for that, uniquely qualified for specific tasks, including what I believe God asked John to do. Why do I think he was an artist? Well, he was young uh, and impressionable and very sensitive to the needs of Jesus. And we see that all the way along. He lived a long and I believe a very contemplative life. His quintessential opposite could be Peter, I suppose. Peter was very impulsive. He was didactic. He was very logical in his expression. So if you go to Acts chapter 2, the great f famous uh, sermon of Peter's, you see a logical progression of explanation in, in expl standing up that day and explaining what is going on. If you read his uh, his first letter, First Peter. It's very organized and orderly and linear in its reason, reasoning. 
John isn't like that. John wrote the fourth gospel. It's a unique gospel. No other gospel is like it. The other three we call synoptic gospels. They are similar to each other. They follow a similar pattern. You can buy a book called A Harmony of the Gospels, and you'll find the first three gospels lining up in their stories. Not every account that every gospel finds shows up in the other ones, but the ones that do, you can follow them, and you find a, a logical and mostly chronological progression in those gospels. John's gospel is completely different. It's totally unique. It doesn't follow a natural uh, chronological order necessarily. It was written much later. It was written to second-generation believers in the city of Ephesus and that whole region of Asia. He was speaking much later in his older years. So he was the youngest disciple at the beginning, lived this long life, and now we find him near the end of the first century, writing as an old man to, I think, many second-generation believers who were trying to figure out whether they really were going to believe what their parents had told them or not, trying to figure out their faith for themselves. Finally, he could capture the images of revelation. That's another reason I believe he was an artist. He and Daniel and Ezekiel are special people to be able to take what they saw which no doubt was way beyond words, and render that in some way that we might understand. Now, has anybody fully understood the book of Revelation and all that is explained there? I'm not sure John could fully understood it. Stand out, he couldn't. He said that. Yet he was specially chosen to try and render this ecstatic, amazing, supernatural uh, picture after picture of what God was doing and was going to do. He was unique among the disciples. The Life Application Bible says that Jesus, that John walked and talked with Jesus. He saw him heal. He heard him teach. He watched him die, the only one of the twelve. He met him arisen, and he saw him ascend. And I'd like to add to that. He also saw him glorified in the book of Revelation and probably knew and followed his cousin John the Baptist before he even followed Jesus. So this guy, from beginning to end, from his youth until his very old age, perhaps saw the most comprehensive presentation in John the Baptist, introduction, and then execution of all of the plans that God had through the Son, and then his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. This guy is uniquely qualified to write a gospel, to write the three epistles named after him and the book of Revelation. Now, all of that being true, there are a couple of things about this letter then that should not surprise us if all of those things are true. And I suggest these. First of all, he's concerned with living out the message, walking it, not just talking it. Glenn Parker says, First John is about true Christian faith, But the evidence of that faith is measured by the genuineness of one's Christian lifestyle, not so much about what he knows. Like many of the authors of the New Testament, John was also addressing some heresies that existed in the day, and the one that he was addressing was all about knowledge. If you just knew enough, then, you know, you could understand everything. And he's writing to say it isn't about what you know as much as it is about how you 
walk. There are three major themes in his letter, that God is light, that God is love, and that God is life. But John, as he renders all of this, says, do you walk in the light? Do you love others? Do you live what has been purchased for you? So you can see that he's very concerned about how people live out what is true. So he's concerned about the living out of the message, the walking of it, and not just talking of it. Secondly, his writings are very late, late in comparison to the other New Testament writers. Everything that we have in the New Testament, we believe, was written by the end of the first century. He writes near the end of the first century. The gospel was written sometime between 75 and 80 AD, then 1 John 85 and 90, and then Revelation likely after 90. There are some who believe that he actually wrote the gospel after Revelation. That's a debatable issue, but all of his works were later in the uh, century. This means he's a man writing to walkers. He's done this for a while. He's an old man now, and he means for others to do the same thing. So in other words, get on the track, stay on the track. This is the path Follow it, walk it, prove what you know in what you do. And then his letter is a piece of expressive art. What he writes is, going, is not going to look exactly like what other people have already written. His thought pattern is more artistic in the rendering of the objects from, from different angles than just three ideas in a row to be communicated. I told you, there are these three major themes. But if you've ever tried to just break them into, uh, this part is about this and this and this, in fact, you, you can. You can basically say that the first two chapters are about light, the second two chapters are about love, and the last chapter is about life. But it doesn't quite work that way. It's more like three braids that make up a rope or three parts woven together to make a braid. Three major thought lines, all intertwined, clearly distinguishable as different, but so connected they strengthen each other and produce what is a strong, dependable tool of truth that can hold against the strongest of storms. That, I think, is the picture that he offers us, these three themes as they weave their way through his thinking and this artistic expression of these concepts. These themes of light and love and life. God is light, and that light comes into our dark world. God is love, and he loves us, and then through us expresses that love to others. And God is life, and his life is what he works in us and has us live out as representatives of who he is. So our purpose in coming to 1 John is this. To hear from the one whom Jesus loved, he must know something about love. To glean some insights from the heart of this artist and to see if the first thing that God really says is, I love you. So, let's take these various thoughts and offer them to you in these two ways in these two weeks. So just this week I want to talk about love declared and then in the next week we'll look at love defined. The first thing that happens is that when he considers this concept of love, so we're into chapter 3 because he's talked about light in chapters 1 and 2, the first thing he does is he makes a declaration. Now, I think that's significant. 
That's what was read for us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's significant. He hasn't defined love yet. That's next week. We know the end of the story. You already know that you're supposed to love other people as God loves because you've read ahead. But if you'd never read it, the first thing that happens is the declaration of love. God does not say, in other words, if you love, then I'll love you. He doesn't say, show me your love and then I'll decide whether I'm going to love you. He first declares his love. Chapter 3, verse 1. See, don't miss this first word. Look, look, see it. Don't miss this. What great love, agape love, 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love, selfless, sacrificial love, perfect love that never fails. Let's just remind ourselves of what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love is patient and it is kind and it does not envy and it does not boast and it is not proud and it does not dishonor and it is not self-seeking and it is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs and love does not delight in evil but it rejoices in the truth and it always protects and it always trusts and it always hopes and it always perseveres and love never fails. Now, we read that chapter and say, I can't love that way. God can and he does and he says, first thing, See, don't miss, what great love, that kind of love is lavished. Oh, sorry. The Father, the Father, next words, personal God. His name defines the relationship that he intends. I love you so much, I want you to be my children. I am your Father. Not simply a great God, but a personal God. And then this love is lavished, freely given. This is the word that is used when we pray in Matthew chapter 6, as we did at the beginning of the service. Give us this day our daily bread, the free giving of what is necessary. It's used in the very next chapter, in Matthew chapter 7, of the father and the example there. If a child asks his father for bread, will he give him a stone? Of course not. Freely gives what is necessary for that child. Perfect segue into the next phrase. We, that we should be called children of God, unworthy subjects. Do you believe that you deserve to be called a child of God? Would anyone be so presumptuous as to think they should actually deserve to be called a child of God? Do you feel you're entitled to be a member of his family? Most people would not presume such royalty when we know our own poverty. Yet he says in his love that's exactly what he wants you to be. And just in case you didn't hear it, 
See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Just in case you missed it, he throws in another phrase. And that is what you are. He loves you. I told you the first thing he says to you is, I love you. I told you the first thing that God would ever say to you if he showed up in person in front of you would be, I love you. And we can know it because the disciple whom Jesus loved says before he defines love that God declares his love for you. And he does it first. So just a couple of lessons out of God loving and loving first. You loved once. He keeps doing that over and over again. As you read through this chapter, he calls you dear children and, 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 and loved ones, blessed ones, beloved ones, over and over and over. So you loved ones. You should know what's coming. That's verses 3 through 6 of chapter 3. All who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. Because God loves you first, he gives you hope, and that hope changes your behavior and not vice versa. When you know this love, you respond in love and in obedience. This is the hope that we have that change can really come. Not that we're good enough and we can change ourselves, but that we are so loved that as we respond to that love, he changes us. When you embrace his love towards you, he will change you. You're so transformed by that love that he brings transformation in your behavior. You should know what's coming. If you love him back the way he loves you, your life will change. Your life should change. We should all be saying, I've walked this path long enough with this loving God that my life is different than it was. Now, the longer we walk, the more we recognize the change that needs to come, and no one's ever going to be perfect until we get to glory. But we ought to be able to say, his love is what changed me. In Paul's word, words, the love of God compels us. So you loved ones should know what's coming. God is going to change you through his love. And then secondly, you should know who you are, and that's verses 11 through 18. And here we see the children, if that's what we are, are a part of a family, and they love family. The first example is a negative one of Cain and Abel. Don't do that. <laughs> Instead, he uses a special word here in verse 13. He calls us brothers and sisters, and this is a specific term to the family of God. In chapter 4, we're going to get to the definition of love next week, and there he uses a different word as he refers to loving one another. That's a broader term for those that are beyond the family, but for right now, within the family, hmm, Know who you are in the family and see the needs of those in your family and act on those needs. Verses 16 and 17. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our Adelphi, our brothers and sisters, those in the family. 
If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, you loved ones, let us love in words, not just in words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So love is declared. Love next week we'll see is defined. Love is also commanded. That's in verse 23. We'll see that next week too. But love is never demanded. It's just responded to in kind. God just wants a return on his love. That's why he mentions it first. It's just that important. The loving God of this universe will never demand that a person love him. He'll urge, he'll encourage, he'll love so much, he'll demonstrate how great that is that while a person is yet a sinner, Christ dies for them. He'll define what that love is so we can understand it better. He'll even command those who do understand it to love as he loved so the people are drawn into his love. But he will never demand that you love him. He just wants you to respond. How will you respond to the love of God? Like a child who receives it? Like a child whose life is shaped and changed and knows hope because of it? Let God love you first. Then knowing the hope that there is in that love, allow him to change you. And knowing the hope that's in that, love those that God loves just like he does. Let's speak to this loving God we have. Thank you, Lord. And before defining this amazing, selfless, sacrificial love, you declare it. You tell us. First, that you love us. How amazing that you would define yourself as a father who wants to have children that he loves. How great that you would lavish on us such amazing love. We don't have to doubt it. We don't question it, for that is what we are. Thank you. Would you work through that love to change us and make us more like yourself? Would you work in the heart of anyone that's here that doesn't understand how immense that love is to come to understand that the first thing you're concerned about is that they know of your sacrificial love. Help us all to respond like the children that we are by giving that love back, by reliving in the hope of that love 
and becoming more and more like you. Thank you that because you love us, we can even say, we love you too. In Jesus' name.